and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Today, I want to introduce you to a very dear friend of mine, Dylan Lewis. In this episode, we discuss suicide, depression, and anxiety, and this may not be the right time or the right conversation for you today, and that is okay. Give yourself permission to skip this episode and join us next week. If you find that this material concerns you or you ever need some help, reach out to Lifeline on 131114. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge anyone that has lost someone or has ever been affected by suicide. Dill and I discussed in depth whether we would actually do this interview and once we recorded it, we still weren't sure if we would release it. It was actually the first interview I did of the season. There's so many reasons why we weren't sure if we would release it. The main one being the impact on Dylan's loved ones, his family and his friends. Sometimes when you hear what is actually happening for someone through their deepest depressive episodes, it can really hit home. Where was I? Why didn't I do more? How could I have not known? As you hear this interview, when Dylan's in his darkest moments, he couldn't tell people. He couldn't even leave his bedroom. He suffered in silence. As hard as this conversation is to hear, it is an important one to be had. I know for myself, I spoke to Dylan multiple times over those years, and I question where I was. But when you live in another state and your friend is out and about living their life, it's really hard to comprehend what is actually going on for them, how dark it can get. It's almost human nature to think everything's going to be okay. So today we discuss his journey. When he was told, just have another couple of beers, you'll be right, followed by, you're just sad, not depressed, it took his second near-fatal attempt to suicide to finally get some support and the help that he needed. We talk about his brave decision to go interstate to rehab and how that has impacted his life today. Sometimes I wish I could have recorded this conversation in a year's time when we both knew a lot more about podcasting, but this is a conversation that cannot wait a year. If it saves one person's life, then it's worth having today. You do not need to suffer in silence. It may take a couple of goes to find the right support team, but it is out there and you are worth fighting for. As a result of Dylan's personal experience, he started a campaign in the Northern Territory called Mental Mates, a movement that builds skills in the community to stop suicide. This campaign reached over 1,600 people in Catherine and across Australia. Their tagline being, know the signs, ask the right questions, and get the right help. Another thing, for friends of Dill's, I know you guys are going to want to reach out to him after hearing this episode. It's hard for him to revisit this over and over again, so we came up with an idea. We thought if you write in the Facebook group challenges that change us, or if you DM me, I can pass it on to him. It just means that he's not going to get 100 text messages from 100 different people throughout this week. One of the strongest take-home messages from this interview is that no one strategy works for every person. Keep trying until you find the right recipe that works for you 
And if the person you're talking to isn't hearing you or taking you seriously, we encourage you to try someone else. So let's get into today's conversation. I'd like to welcome Dylan Lewis to the podcast this morning. Thanks for um, coming in this morning, Dill. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah, no problem at all. We like to start all our podcasts with a couple of questions to get to know our um, interviewees. So my first question to you is if you were to pick an animal to describe yourself, what animal would you choose and why? Yeah, after a bit of, bit of thought, I chose uh, a cattle dog. Mm. I have a very good connection with, with the cattle dogs I do have. I've got four, four cattle dogs, but the way I was thinking about it, you know, they probably bite off more than they can chew. They, they uh, take on some big beasts and, um, yeah, they also they can switch off a bit, which I think as I've gotten older, I've learned how to do. They can go from being flat stick to, to a lazy dog on the back veranda. And, uh, yeah, I think as I'm getting older, I can definitely do that. That's interesting. I was thinking about this as well and what animal I'd describe. I couldn't come up with an animal, but I did come up with loyal and stubborn. And so I think cattle dogs, because <laughs> I think when you've got your mind on something, you know, you're so focused yeah. and, and driven in that space. So a, a yeah. cattle dog would definitely fit the mold there. And you said you've got four. Yeah. Are you yeah, I've got four cats. Breeding them? No, no. We had them for uh guard dogs pretty much in Catherine. Yeah. Yeah, we 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 didn't intend on having that many. So I had three when myself and Carmen got together and then she had one and then uh we've got a fifth dog and it just wandered in off the street. It's a little Catherine camp dog, so she's oh. not a she's the odd one out. She's not a cattle dog, but <laughs> yeah. That's almost like the two families, blended families, when they come together, you guys have come with five yeah. dogs. That's a lot. How do yeah. you feed them all? Oh, it's all right. They're not too bad now that they're older. They don't don't need a heap. But, yeah, we, I think, what is it, 20 kilo bag every two weeks. Oh, my God. Yeah. And you said you needed them as guard dogs up in Catherine. Why did yeah. you need them as guard dogs? Firstly, when I was traveling around, I had a lot of tools on my ute and a lot of opportunistic crime, I think, around Catherine and the Territory where people, if they can put their hands on something and walk off with it, they will. Mm. And in Catherine Town, pretty high number of break-ins very regularly. So, um, yeah, five dogs definitely put a stop to that quick. Yeah. yeah. It would be a horrible feeling not knowing, you know, if someone's going to come, break in. Like, is that that's one of the reasons why you left the Territory in the end, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, we, we had not a nice situation in the street we lived in. Yeah, there's a large problem in the in the territory that's ongoing with youth crime, and basically youth up there are given the presumption of parole. So, and now they know that, so they get arrested. They're back on the street pretty much ten minutes later, mm-hmm. and it's sort of at the point where the cops don't even bother arresting them now. And because they know it, they break. And we left. Well, Carmen left with a police escort because they were throwing rocks at our house. And oh, my God. Because we asked them to be quiet <laughs> while our baby slept. And, yeah, it was, it was pretty full-on place at the moment. Yeah. Wow. We're going we're gonna to talk a bit more about the Territory as we get into the conversation today. It's a very interesting yeah. place. If, if people haven't been up there, it's worth going for a trip up to the Territory. Australia is such a huge yeah. country and Western Australia to Northern Territory to, to South Australia to New South Wales are all just so different. It's almost like you're in a different country sometimes. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. Although I, I think the problems going on in rural Northern Territory like Catherine, Tennant Creek, Alice Springs especially, 
aren't that unique. Talking to mates from Western New South Wales, it's definitely ramping up out there as well. Yeah. yeah. And Dil, the other question I like to ask our guests is when you were growing up, did you have a favourite room in the house? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this. Is Yeah, probably not a room in the house, probably the shed. I, I love being outside and um, in the shed, got to do stuff, make stuff with Dad. Yeah, it was pretty good. Is that where you learn all your trade? Because you're very good with your hands in building stuff. You can do welding like this. When, it, when I think about you, I think you're always outside doing something with your hands. Is that where the love yeah. of it came from? I think so, yeah. Yeah, always tinkering with, with tractors and, and like I think I picked up the welder with Dad when I was about 10. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm pretty pretty sure I was around the same age. I started ploughing a paddock as well and things like that. So. Where yeah. did you grow up? Just near Bathurst. On a farm? Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Sydney. We moved to Bathurst when I was about five and we had a little farm there and then we got the bigger farm at Millthorpe uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I think, yeah. And you went to school yeah. in that local area, didn't you? Yeah, I, I went to Stanley's in Bathurst and, and primary school in Bathurst, yeah. And then up to college to St Albert's where there's been a couple of our guests from St Albert's already. It's It was a great yeah. place to get to know and build connections for the rest of your life when we are up there, wasn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Yep, to this day, like, so we've recently moved back to Bogabroy here and, um, yeah, I've caught up with probably four or five mates from Albies already and, yeah, it's just, it doesn't seem to matter where you go in Australia, there's a connection there somewhere, it's, um, it's a pretty cool thing. I remember when I lived up in Darwin for a year, I worked out at sea for Paspaley Pearls and we only spent a week on land um, and then would go back out to sea for another swing. And I remember yeah. in the nine weeks that I came on land, I always ran into someone from Albies. Like over the other side of Australia, yeah. there was always someone. You'd be walking down the street and be like, oh, look, hey, how are you going? Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. a small world. Definitely. What took you up to the Territory in the first place? Yeah, so uh, – Got a job up there managing a mango farm, mm. but I suppose the lead up to that was I had a a pretty bad car accident. In uh, I was living in, over in Grafton at the time, and uh, yeah, had a had a bad car accident there, and, and lost ended up losing my license, and I needed to find a job pretty much where I didn't need a license, and the territory were more than accommodating. <laughs> like you don't need to drive anywhere; you just come. Just come, we'll get started. Come so. as you are. And just yeah. with that car accident, I remember that I remember that week deal when you had that car accident. That was you were pretty lucky to yeah. walk away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite high speed. I'd flipped flipped the car end for end four times. Yeah, well, I was very lucky to get away. I, I think I only broke my shoulder and, and uh I had a I had a pretty bad concussion. I was out to it for a fair while with that. But yeah. And do you want to talk to us a little bit about the lead up to that car crash? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't in a very good headspace. I suppose the 12 months leading into that had gone through a fair bit. I'd moved away from Armadale, away from a, my support network of friends and that. I was living by myself out at Mungandai. I uh, went through a pretty bad breakup and... Yeah, I suppose I'd isolated myself quite a bit and, and moving to Yamba and Grafton was a, a part to try and reconcile that, I think. I moved in with uh, one of my best mates, Waza. I don't know, with my mental health, I, I just wasn't addressing it well, I don't think. Um, didn't really understand then that I could be thinking in a way that was harmful to myself. 
And when you say that, Dil, that yeah. just around that mental health, you're saying that because the car crash, I know we've had a conversation about this, but now when you look back, you think that might have been one of the early signs that something might have been going on. Before that, did you yeah. know? Did you like? Did you know that you were feeling really down and upset and oh, feeling alone? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. There'd been times before that where I'd um, definitely got really low, didn't turn up to work thought about just getting in my car and driving off with nowhere in particular to go just to get away from good people really like it was just I don't know I was trying to escape myself I think a little bit did that happen over a couple of years or was that something that you sort of woke up and you were like oh this this feeling that I don't know where it's come from or no in hindsight now like my anxiety definitely was around when through my high school years and and I think got worse once alcohol got involved mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to unwind it I suppose so it was just like a rubber band that kept twisting up twisting up twisting up and by the time the car accident had come around I'd you know there was a space there of probably two or three months leading into that where I had thought quite regularly about about crashing a car on purpose okay and I suppose to this day I can't really remember the details of the accident, like going into it, I can't remember it happening because of the head knock that I got. So I can't be definitive, I suppose, whether I'd done it on purpose or not, but there was no brake marks. There's not. There's a lot to suggest that I'd, I could have done it on purpose. So. And when I hear you talk about it over these years, still, it sounds to you that you wonder whether there was an intention behind it as well? The more I think about it, the more I think there probably, probably was, mm. but... At the end of the day, I'm glad that I can't remember, like right before. I can't really remember the couple of days leading into into the that accident. Really, yeah. And talking about those few months, would you, to years because it started when you're at high school. You said in hindsight you think that there was some anxiety going on. Did you at any point yeah. think I have anxiety or I'm feeling depressed leading into that, or was it just a no. feeling that that you're familiar with but you didn't actually know what it was or what to do with it? Yeah, well, I suppose that's why I say in hindsight because now I know what it is mm-hmm. and, and how it manifests. Back then I was, I don't know, people just say, oh, you're stressing out over things or, you know, it was, wasn't was really a talked about thing, anxiety or depression going through high school. I, I, I look back at it now, like I've never been able to sit exams or, or sit them well. I've always nearly failed it at exam time because I get so nervous and anxious about what I've got to do to perform in that, that, yeah, like exam time was really stressful for me mm. and I didn't know how to work with that, I suppose, yeah. And after the car crash, was there alarm bells then for you or did you sort of just get on with life and just keep trudging through? There was alarm bells. I mentioned to a nurse in hospital that I might have crashed on purpose. I wasn't sure. What was her reaction? The nurse was awesome. She got people there straight away she kept the cops away from me for as long as she could and um, got a a counsellor in for me and that unfortunately that counsellor probably done more damage than good yeah for me might just ask you about that because that's something as a as a counsellor myself it's something I hear a lot about is some it's about finding the right person for you at the right time and you know what was your experience with that counsellor so basically I told him my story about, you know, leading up to it, 
how I thought about crashing the car, uh, breakups, and uh, yeah, he pretty much told me, oh, I don't think you've got depression, you're just a bit sad, you'll be right. Wow. Uh, didn't give me any tools or didn't really suggest anything that I could be doing to make myself feel better, I suppose. So I left there thinking, righto, what I have going on is normal and I've just got to harden up and get through it, I suppose. Wow. Yeah. And as this story unfolds, I mean, as the listeners hear it, it, it's incredible to think that that was your experience. In hospital, you were actually questioning at the time whether that was a suicide attempt. You speak to a professional at the time and they tell you that, no, you're not depressed. That's unfortunately sometimes what happens in the industry. And for anyone listening, I guess it's really important that you don't stop. You know, if you feel like something's not right or or you don't feel yourself or you're feeling like you're really down, sad, anxious, keep keep going until you find the person that, that hears you and listens to you and helps you through it. So, Dil, what happened? You left the hospital. What happened yep. next for you on your journey? So, mum and dad come and got me from hospital and took me back to the farm for a few weeks. I recovered from a, um, the main main injury for me was the, the concussion. I remember there for two or three weeks where I'd sleep for pretty much 14 hours a day. It was hard to get a, a train of thought and that for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, so I spent some time at, at home there at the farm and then once I started to feel better there and felt that I could physically go back to work, yeah, that's when I went back up to Grafton for a while, started work again but realised I was going to lose my licence and then started looking for a proper job where at the time I was just doing casual work, building sheds and working at the pub and, yeah, Looking for proper jobs, got on a job in, in Catherine, managing a mango farm, and just went, yeah, awesome. That's this is my like, next chapter. Yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, I'll get to use the uni that I had, had done, and uh, and I'd always wanted to be a farmer anyway. Yeah, so I got up there. And when you got up to Catherine, did you find that um, life just settled down, and you got into it, and you're feeling good, or did it hang around? Like, when you talk about the anxiety and depression, is that something that you you were feeling uh, and dealing with on an everyday basis or did it come and go in waves? Yeah, uh, definitely on an everyday basis. I suppose it's hard to describe. Like I, I suppose I worked really hard and part of that was me just trying to turn my head off, I think. If I got stuck into my work, I wouldn't have those thoughts as much. But then at the end of the day, they always catch up with you. Your, mm. your head starts spinning again. And, and when you say the thoughts and your head starts spinning – for some people out there that haven't had a conversation with anyone, what are the kind of things that were going on in your head? Basically, you, I don't know, for me, and I think this happens to most people, that you, you'll randomly think of something bad that's happened from time to time. And for me, you'd, I'd start dwelling on that and then it'd get worse and worse to the point where it just drove down my self-esteem and you were going, what's the point of being here? Could you answer that question at the time? Found it pretty hard. I suppose it, at the time I, I could dismiss it because, you know, I was going well with my job. I got stuck into footy and Catherine early on and I was lucky I had another close mate there, uh, Dick Peatling. Uh, he moved there about the same time. So like, when we started catching up pretty regular, it was, you know, I had a lot a lot to be thankful for and a lot, a lot of good things going on and I think that balanced it out. Yeah. But it wasn't wasn't really dealing with it either. And so what happened for you? You said you have all of these things going, but what happened for it all to start to slide? Well, that come much later. 
I suppose. Yeah, I suppose leading up to the slide, I, to try and deal with my anxiety, I, was, I pretty much worked harder and harder, and, and it was a good thing. It got me to the next job I'd had was managing a quite a big peanut farm, and at my my age, I, uh, there's not many people that that sort of get to that level of management that that early on in their careers. So it was a massive driving factor for me because I was so my escape was work, so I just hooked in and. And then that got me into business. Same thing. Worked my ass off. We were growing really fast and had a good good thing going there. Doing hay contracting and with the truck. Had a road train up there. Um, but when it all come to a head quick was when the 2011 live export ban. Mm. I lost probably oh, six to eight months of work overnight. And then there was clients that lost their income as well that I never got back because they just they didn't recover from it either. Yeah. And for me, it went from working, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks to nothing. There's no work to do. And I had machinery payments and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's a pretty stressful time trying to work out. Yeah. What happened next? So over the 12 months from the ban, just clutching at straws, trying to get any work I could for the truck and my machinery had another breakup, yeah, and just payments getting further and further behind. And, yeah, in 2012, got to the point where I was like, this isn't worth it anymore. And I pretty much worked out that if my family sold all the machinery and and my house, that they probably wouldn't have any money owing to banks or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I've come very close to to suiciding. Mm. Dill, are you able to tell us about that night? Yeah, I was actually um, early in the morning. I'd had, went to a party the night before, had a fair bit to drink, I think. It was a pretty good night, really, with with mates, but I, I had to drive home from, the party was halfway to Darwin, and then in the car, on the way home, the thought started and ramped up really quickly. Over the sort of two-hour drive, the last hour, I was just crying the whole time, couldn't shut them down. And then by the time I got home, I, I um, walked in the house and went, right, this is, I'm going to do, do this. It's, this has got to stop. I didn't know how to turn off the thoughts in my head. And um, so went to the kitchen and got the sharpest knife I've had and yeah I was holding it to my wrist for about half an hour trying to work up to it and luckily for me someone was my ex-girlfriend had worked out what was going on and sent she was out of town sent a a mutual friend around and um, she knocked on the door and that stopped it wow Um, in that moment yeah yeah so what happened when did you put the knife down, go to the door, and then tell her, or like how did it go from? Because that is a dark place still no. where you were. That is a dark, yeah. lonely place. I put the knife back on the kitchen bench so it didn't look like I'd been using it, I suppose, or and answered the door and then just broke down. I couldn't talk for probably a good hour. She just sat there with me. And then uh, I had a couple of housemates and they got home and 
pretty much called another good mate up there, Windows, and he come around and, and got me and I, I stayed with him for a few days. And, okay. Um, his, his wife's a nurse. Yeah. So she, uh, yeah. And did you tell them how close you were? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I suppose one part I've left out there is, is leading up to this, like there had been episodes in my mental health before then. Like I had gone to hospital prior to that trying to get help. I'd told a doctor that I'd thought about suicide and they sent me to hospital. That was probably a good six months, eight months before this happened. Yeah. What happened at the hospital? They pretty much gave me sleeping medication. Mm-hmm. At the time, I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep to save myself. I'd, 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 I'd be lucky to get one or two hours sleep a night. Um, oh, God. And then... I suppose leading up to the, uh, that party and that I was self-medicating pretty hardcore by then. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, at least half a dozen beers and and a half a bottle of rum to pretty much pass out every night so I could try and get some sleep. And do, to think about listening to your story now and to think about where you are now is quite an incredible journey of resilience and just having to fight your own fight, you know, like there was being in the territory and I was just going to ask you about that. Like what kind of help was there for you? You went to your friend's house. What happened around that for someone that's listening and thinking, my God, I really resonate with this and I feel on my own. I don't even know where to start. Like I don't even know where to ask for help. Yeah. Over that time I'd been talking to the Catherine that there is a mental health team in Catherine, but at the time they were very under-resourced and like it wasn't easy to get an appointment. When you say not easy, are you talking about like waiting 24 hours or you mean like you'd have to wait weeks? Weeks, a lot of the time. From a suicide yep. attempt, it can be weeks until you can get in and see someone. Oh, no, generally they, their mental health nurses were, if it had gone that far, they were onto it pretty much and come out and talk to you straight away. But to get through to a, a psychiatrist was generally weeks. Wow, this is scary. Yeah. So how did you go from... At Windows House, how did you take your steps? What were the first steps that you took? Because Windows had knew about my, like we tell each other everything, and um, he was like, "Whatever help you get, and it's not working, mate. We need to find out what's mm. going on. We get to the bottom of this." I was like, "Yeah, I, I agree." He got me into the mental health unit quickly to the psychiatrist. She saw me straight away because she'd known about the hospital visit, obviously as well, and then the attempt and. Yeah, so pretty much the plan, like the the advice from there was um, they got me onto some medication. I've been very reluctant to take any medication till then. Um, yeah, and then sort of had a breather. Windows got hold of my parents. They come up and it was the beginning of the healing, I suppose. We, we shut down the company. Like it was in a pretty much a non-recoverable mm. position by then financially. And that was your parents that came up to help with that? Yeah, they flew up straight away. I, they didn't really – I never told them the details of what I'd, I'd done. And to this day, it's pretty hard to talk to them about yeah. it. They sort of have heard it, I suppose, but not from me. I know, Dill, having talk, spoken to you, that one of your concerns is that you feel like your parents were there all the way through and that it's talking about it. You don't want them to – think that they could have done something because they they were so far away you know like we're spoken about already yeah. it's such an isolating 
lonely place and road and it's it's very hard to reach out even to your closest people and your family to say that something's going on right yeah definitely like it i don't know my biggest thing was that i was letting them down Mm. that you know like dad was a director of the company there's a good chance that we would have had to sell the farm to cover my ass Mm. and um thankfully that didn't happen we worked out a way around that and we got things on track, but it was, yeah, it was a pretty hard, hard road. And it sounds like you went into logistics. So you went to the hospital, you got some medication, and then you started yep. to work on, well, how do, how do I change things in my life now because what's going on isn't working for me from a logistical perspective. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. What's your experience of medication? Yeah, that was uh, a, a tough road, I suppose. I went through probably... Over the space of about six years, I've probably had about nine or ten different medications. Um, the hardest part with any mental health medication is that there's not one fit for everything, I suppose, and that you can't, they can sort of, for me, they couldn't narrow it down to depression or anxiety or if I had bipolar or no one could really tell me what was going on. So it was pretty much just trial and error with the medication, trying to level myself out, get sleep and um, eat well and did some of the medication send you in the opposite direction yeah um yeah how did you manage that did you have a diary or did someone else monitor that for you no i didn't have a diary i just if it didn't feel right i I tried to book in and see doctor straight away uh the psychiatrist straight away i should say over the years I, i and i don't mean to discredit them but i haven't found gps that helpful in that space Mm. What you're talking about is that trying to find the right road for you, which will be different to everyone else. And this is something that I see all the time in industry. It's not just about medication or just about nutrition or just about sleep. Uh, It's really important that you have a really solid team around you. And wherever you are in Australia or in the world, it might be your GP, but it might also not be. It might be your psychologist or your psychiatrist or it's I wish there was one simple road that people could take, but it, as you're talking and I, and I was just going to have a bit of a conversation with you around that is that there isn't a simple road and it's very much trial and error for your own life. Would you say that? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think the mistake in hindsight for me was that I thought, you know, going to see a psychiatrist, you know, they're the expert. Yeah. That's all I had to do. I take a pill, that should make me feel better. That's not the case at all. Like it, your mental health, is very much about wholeness, I suppose, like your whole health and well-being. And I didn't really work, learn about that properly until I went to the mental health hospital in, in Sydney. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about that. How did you go from being in Catherine, seeing a psychiatrist, to getting to a mental health rehab? Because a lot of people don't know that step. Like how do you find out about them? How do you get into them? What is it like going to it? How, what do you tell people in the town? Like what was... What did you do? How did you yeah. find out? Uh, so it was just on and off chance. I had been talking to a friend that it turned out they'd done the same thing. I didn't even know these places existed. Mm-hmm. And when when they told me about it, I was like, wow, that could really help. Um, because over this time, this is going on now probably, oh, geez, what would have it been? A good four or five years after the attempt and, and working through different medications and trying to work with the team in Catherine and just not ever quite getting it. Like there'd be times where 
I'd be knocked off work for two or three weeks because I couldn't get my mental health right. Mm. My anxiety had started to turn into sometimes a wasn't schizophrenia, but it wasn't far from it. You know, where I'd be locking myself in the room, thinking that there's someone else in the house that, I, and I just didn't want to deal with anyone. I'd pretty much lock myself in my room for days. It was, um, yeah, pretty full. Horrendous. So much to even revisit it, isn't it? To even be going back to that place and thinking about it is just, I can feel it and and people can't see us on camera, but just, you know, the big breaths and the, like it takes up your whole soul, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's something you wouldn't wish upon anyone Mm. to be in that place. Um, And, you know, it started to feel helpless again. Mm. I was just like, I'm I'm doing all the right things here. Why why isn't this going away? Why isn't it going away? How did you get to the rehab? So you spoke to your friend. What happened next? I spoke to the to the psychiatrist in, in Catherine, and I said, "Look, I think this might be a good thing." And she goes, "Yeah, it would be an awesome thing. Um, I'll give you the referral." I was like, "Why was this never brought up that it's an, even an option?" Did you ask that question? Yeah, I did. And what did they say? They say most people can't afford to do it, and it's interstate. Well, we didn't think you were willing to travel interstate and things like that. They sort of made a few assumptions there that. My psychiatrist appointments in Catherine would have been lucky to last 10 minutes because, like, there's one psychiatrist, she was retiring age and was under the pump. She serviced the whole Catherine region, which for people that don't know, that's from the WA border to the Queensland border to just south of Darwin and then all the way to Tennant Creek, pretty much. So she had a massive job on her shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, the population's not that high, but... She was one lady servicing Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous people in that whole area. The, just the, yeah, it was, the workload for her was ridiculous. Mm. Uh, I un- understand why she only had a little bit of time for me. Like, you can understand it, but it doesn't yeah. make it okay. You know, from a, from a national perspective, it's, we think we have these services in place that um, are doing a job and if they're, if they're not resourced, yeah. they can't do it. Their hands are tied. They don't have the time, yeah, the money, right. the people. Yeah, she, she got a, the referral. It's a, bit of, a fair bit of a process. I had to get private health insurance. I didn't have that mm-hmm. before. Luckily, the the hospital told me exactly what I had to do. Go go get this health insurance policy. After six weeks, you'll be right to come here, and they'll foot the bill. Okay. So they walked walked me through the steps really well. Did you go to the rehab that your friend told you about, or did you research rehabs, or did you call friends and ask? Like, how did you decide on that rehab? So it was one run by the same institution as my my friend. A friend had gone to one in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was Ramsey Ramsey Health, mm-hmm. and they've got a hospitals all over the country now. I think at the time they might have had one in, I think it was pretty much Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne mm-hmm. were the options and um, I chose Sydney because it was closer to mum and dad. And, uh, and did you have to go for a period of time? Were you locked into a period of time? Yeah. And then how did you explain that to everyone at home in, in Catherine? I didn't really tell too many people in Catherine but I uh, told my employers at the time and I, I told my close mates um, that this is what I was going to do to try and get get sorted out. And I was obviously fully supportive of that. They'd seen the journey that I'd, I'd been through to try and get this stuff sorted. It's one of the things that I hear a lot from people is, what am I going to tell people? Like people are going to notice that I'm missing and I don't want yep. them to know that I'm in a rehab, so how do I get around that? Yeah, yeah, I suppose pretty much for me it, it, it was just screening my calls and, 
and that as well. Yeah. Like if there's any other outside work-related stuff, people that didn't have to know, I, I didn't tell mm-hmm. straight away and, and didn't answer their calls or, or anything like that. But because there, there was a six-week waiting period, I was able to plan for it pretty well, yeah. I suppose. Um, I, was, I was able to – and it, I think with work and that, I ended up dragging it out for about 10 to 12 weeks before I actually went just so it, it fit in with everything. And having a plan in place, was that helpful? Like knowing that you were going, was that enough to hold the space for you to get there? Uh, yes and no. Like it was definitely something I like – for work, I ended up trying to put it off for too long and I got – got myself to the point where my mental health deteriorated again mm-hmm. and I had no choice. I was like, no, I have to go now because I'm having time off work anyway because I can't front up. Mm. So that's what ended up. I, I rang the hospital. They're like, yeah, get here now. And what did you take away from your time in hospital? It was the, the wholeness, I suppose, of, of looking after your mental health, how how much your, your diet, exercise, uh, taking medication, you know, utilising psychologists and psychiatrists, mm-hmm. having those two forms, I suppose. It's interesting how many people don't know the difference. Mm. How would you explain the difference for someone that's listening? The psychologist is the one you talk to and try and learn techniques to train your brain pretty much to, mm-hmm. to get out of the loops that you're in. And uh, and the psychiatrist is a, a doctor mm-hmm. and they they are the ones that work on the chemical imbalances in your head um, and make sure you're staying on track uh, with with getting the right medication and, and, and that it's working for you. Mm. And then there's the other pieces yeah. of the pie, the sleep, which you spoke about. One That was one of the things that you were yep. missing. Sleep is yep. our biggest recovery tool and so it's so important to try and get your yep. sleep on track. But if you just work on your sleep and you don't work, work on the other avenues, one of them could come in and... and cripple you very quickly so nutrition yeah. exercise sleep psych physician uh, um psychiatrist medication yeah yeah and that like that was the first time i walked out of there pretty confident that was the first time i, I knew i had to get the whole puzzle together mm-hmm. i suppose like it was and it sounds like you were heard um, and validated as well down there for the first time you sort of, people were listening and they were like let's let's work towards getting you better yeah, but it was also the first time I, I think that I'd allowed myself to, like, say you're locked in for at least the first week, mm-hmm. and and you're not allowed to leave the hospital for two weeks, pretty much. You're allowed to, a day trips out and that when they sign you off, but for the first week you're not even allowed to leave the facility. So it, it was intense, but it actually I got there and I had nothing else to concentrate on but my mental health and trying to get to the bottom of what was going on and come up with an action plan to not have these events where I'll spiral out of control. Mm. And it's a really nice time when you can work on what is your action plan when you're feeling well and supported. You know, it's it's the time to do it, not when you're starting to fall. It's about having a plan in place and noticing those signs and steps before and the, the signals yeah. early on. Yep. What would you say is the most helpful strategy that you found for you personally around your anxiety and your thoughts? Uh, meditation, mm-hmm. pretty much. It's the reason why I'm not on medication and haven't been for, what, going on four or five years now. When you say meditation, what does that look like in your world? Uh, for me, it's a combination of breathing techniques, being able to recognize thoughts and then dismiss them or accept them, I suppose, and, and then let them go past. So earlier on when I talked about like a bad thought would enter my head and then it just keeps going around in your head and, and you can't shut it down and 
eventually you spiral to the point where you get the only way I'm going to shut this down is to end it. Mm. And and the thoughts end up turning into I've got to kill myself. Mm. So how does that strategy work? So for me, it's recognizing a bad thought and go, yeah, that was a bad time in my life. But thinking about it isn't helping me at all right now. I don't need to be thinking about this. I've got plenty of other good things going on. It's almost like you're having an adult conversation with yourself. Yeah, it is. It definitely is, yeah. And sometimes it, you know, the spiraling starts before you even realise, mm. you know, and you, you're feeling like shit for no reason and then you go, oh, hang on a minute, why? And then you think about what you've been thinking about, I suppose, and, and then pull yourself up on it. It took a long time to get to that for me. I was going to ask whether this is something that you learnt overnight or you had to practice for many months and, and you still, yeah. I think, to be fair, listening to you, it still slips sometimes, you know, still sometimes you start to get those thoughts oh. and, you, and you miss it, right? All the, all the time, mm. all the time. It's a skill that gets stronger with time though and practice. Would you say, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, you've got to practice. A lot of the stuff early on for me was just breathing techniques mm-hmm. and around sleeping. When you talk about breathing techniques, can you give us an example of one of the ones that you use? Oh, my my biggest one is so breathe in for four, like slowly, like count count the four really slowly. So I go in four, hold it for four, and then out for four. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I've just sort of taught myself that works for me. But what it does is it makes me concentrate on my breathing yep. and my breathing only. There's nothing else in the world. Which means it doesn't allow you to think about all the other thoughts that are running around. Yeah. Do you use that breathing technique when you notice the thoughts are there or do you try and use it every day so that the thoughts don't come? I don't use it so the thoughts don't come. I've, over the time, you can't stop the thoughts coming. Mm-hmm. They pop in and out all the time. If I feel it starting to spiral, then I do have to take a minute and just breathe in and out and... uh get them to stop ruminating and then it gives me time to um, think about or, or give that thought a bit of time and just go, right, oh, yeah, that, that happened or whatever the thought is, that's happened. I've got past that and start thinking about what I'm actually doing at the time or, or think about some good things that are going on. Do you have some go-to good things that you always go back to? Is there one or two stories that you come back to or it always changes your good thing? I'd say it's changed over the years, but definitely now it's just Carmen and Laurie. Like, yeah. 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 It's, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Bringing it back to family. Yeah. 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 And when you mention meditation, do you also use any apps? Or have you done any listening? Yeah. Or for you it's always just been what you've been taught, the strategies, and then implementing them yourself? No, no, no. Definitely used a lot of apps, mainly just through YouTube, to be honest, guided sleep meditation. So if someone's thinking about looking one up, what would they Google? Just if you went into YouTube, probably the best one I've found, go to YouTube and, and put in the search bar sleep meditation. Mm-hmm. There are thousands and thousands of videos on there or recordings um, that you listen to and they talk you through your breathing process and, and, and calm your thoughts down. And I don't know many people that haven't been able to sleep after listening to one of them. It's mm. And it can be hard to concentrate on. I will give it that. There are, I do know people that can't concentrate on what they're saying for long enough. And and sometimes it's finding yeah. the one that works for you. I know we've said that a lot in this yeah. um, podcast, but it, it really is that. You know, yeah. what works for the person next to you and what works for you can be completely different. So someone might yeah. want a sleep meditation app, whereas someone else might just do that counting of the four 
four in, hold for yeah. four, four out. Someone yeah. else might do the alphabet while they're trying to sleep, you know. Yeah. What's all the fruits I can think of? A, B, C, D. Yeah. So it's it's about having a toolbox of strategies and pulling on the ones that work. And if one doesn't work, go to the next one. Yeah. You know, don't stop and don't keep trying until you find something that works for you in that moment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Dil, one of the things that I love about what's come out of this is you started a program up in the Territory called Mental Mates. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, Mental Mates was born, I suppose, through our rugby club. Unfortunately, so over the space of uh, probably three, I think it's three or four years, we lost two fellas to suicide and I knew how close I'd come and in the same period of time. And to, I suppose, put it in perspective, the rugby club there, there's four clubs in Catherine that play each other. So they're literally 15 blokes in each club playing. So it's a pretty tight-knit group. And um, to have that many people suffering mental anguish, I suppose, in that, that small group, that was I was just like, what's going on here? Something's got to change. Why aren't we picking up on... The, the biggest thing for me with those two boys was why did no one pick up that they weren't doing that that great behind the scenes? Which is very real for you because that was your experience as well. No one saw it. No one stopped you and said, "Yeah, the, what's what's going on isn't working for you. How do we help?" Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I suppose mine went over a bit. I did have mates pull me up in the end, but it did take a long time to get to that. Mm. So tell us about mental mates. Yeah. So mental mates was born from from that. We well, I decided that. Something needed to change. We needed to try and get get people educated, I suppose, to pick up on signs where someone's mental health mightn't be quite right. And for me, it was about a few reasons. In the Territory, help can be few and far between, I suppose. It was very hard to access at that time. Uh, hard to work out where, where to go to to get help was the biggest one. Like, that was probably the biggest challenge. People don't even know where to start. They don't know where to start and when they do go, the resources aren't there. Yeah, yep, yep. And then and the other part for me was, you know, a lot of, a lot of programs and that that exist are about trying to get the individual to speak up and to, to talk about their problems. It's a fucking hard thing to do, really hard. And... and a lot of the time, if you're in that headspace, it's the last thing you want to do. Yeah, you don't. You don't even have the words or the well, motivation like to, a, or the. Yeah, like I said, I locked myself in a room for yeah. days on end. I did, I, the last thing I wanted to do was go see someone. So that's where I thought the best way forward from that would be to try and get mental health training out into the community to so people could um, could recognise signs in their friends and hopefully. I suppose nip it in the bud, like try and get them talking about it at a time where they are interacting with other people. Yeah. And the original idea was to try and get at least two people in, in every sporting group in, in Catherine trained in mental health first aid so that they were the mm-hmm. go-to. You know, they interact with these people a lot through training and playing and the social side of, of sport, I suppose, and with a bit of training, like you could hopefully pick up on the signs of, that something wasn't right with with one of the your players or peers, and start a conversation. Like have the confidence to start a conversation around 
how they're actually doing. It's pretty incredible listening to you about where that idea started because it grew from there, didn't it? Where did it end up? I suppose to date, there'd be over a thousand people in that area trained in uh, mental health first aid now. And COVID slowed us down a lot because there's no more face-to-face learning for quite a fair while. But yeah, it's uh, definitely got a lot of support from from the Catherine community and a lot of people are more willing, I suppose, to put their hand up and, and go get some training and try and be someone that can, can help in that situation. And have you had any feedback from the mental mates in the community that the conversations are being had on a ground level? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I know people that have done the training and come out of that and said, you know, wow, I've, I've been handling when someone's come to me with a problem in the completely the wrong way, I suppose. Like, a, Didn't know what to do through lack of knowledge, I think. Yeah, didn't know what to do. Didn't understand the gravity of what could have actually been going on as well, I suppose. Mm. Like, you know, someone's not going to just rock up and go, oh, I thought about suicide yesterday. <clears throat> to get to that point, you know, there's a fair bit of build-up conversation and picking up on little signs that they're not going okay. You know, the biggest one for me is if someone said, oh, I just can't sleep, or one I've noticed over the years too, if someone's dropped a heap of weight and you go, mm. what, what's going on there? Are you actually trying to do that or you're, you're not eating or what? Ask the question. Yeah, yeah, and then and then sort of grow it from, from there. Yeah, and a really good example was um, just yesterday I had a, I noticed that someone had dropped a bit of weight and I actually said to them, yeah. you know, and, and it can it can feel like you – that balance between you don't want to pry into someone's personal life versus you might be asking the question that person needs right now in that moment. And, you know, yeah. I just said to them, I've noticed that you've lost a lot of weight. Is this, are you like, is that what you're meaning to do? Are you okay? Is yeah. there anything I can do? And, and she said, I am not eating. I need some help yeah. straight away. And then we were able to get her some help. But I yeah. remember in my head and I'm a trained, like I did psych at uni and I'm a counselor and I still thought, do I ask that question or don't I? There's yeah. other people around. How do I get her on her own? And I had that kind of freeze moment. So yeah. for someone that hasn't got four to six years of training behind them, it can feel even harder again. But it is so important to ask the question. Yeah, yeah. And that's a lot of the training, I suppose, is, is that. It's just going, you need to have the guts, I suppose, to, to ask some hard questions. Because uh, at mm. the end of the day... Because it saves lives. Well, yeah. And it's only talking. Like, you're not going to make the problem worse you're going to get to the root of the problem and, and work out where to go from there. And I think once someone's talked about it once, I think that's the start of the road to recovery. Like once you've got that out of them and admitted that they've sort of, it's sort of a weight off, it was for me, a weight off my shoulders that I've got this out in the open a bit now and my mates knew about it and they were just on the phone flat out going, right, where do you need to go? What do we need to do yep. to, to get to How can we help? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And if you had, if you were thinking back on all of the experience, and I know we've only, we've only touched on areas, like it goes so much deeper and we can't have that conversation in an hour. Yeah. It's, you know, it feels like almost that we've just gone over the top really because there's so much more underneath. Yeah. Thinking back for you, what is one takeaway from your experience? I really feel like probably – um when I was younger, that if I had been taught a few more tools around dealing with anxiety at a younger age, that a lot of this mightn't have happened. And back, you know, when we were at high school, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't seen 
is a massive important part of your life. You just got on with life. It's only just coming in. Wellbeing in schools is only – we've yeah. started a program, Triatitude Performance, where we can go into schools and work in wellbeing, and one of our pillars is sleep. Yep. Another pillar is mindfulness and reflection. Yep. And it's it's from the same space that you're, you started Mental Mates. It's like if we yeah. can help one person – if I knew this information when I was a 14-year-old, 17-year-old girl, yep. it would have set me up. It would give me the building blocks that I needed for those moments in my life that were challenging and hard. Yep. It doesn't mean that you didn't go through them. It doesn't change the challenges that we face on an everyday or monthly or yearly or lifetime basis, but it does give you the strategies to feel like you can do something or know what to try or know how to ask or know that there might be other strategies out there that you could learn about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it, it makes you realize that how important your brain is, how important it is to keep that it's your most vital organ. You've got to keep that healthy, and and there's a number of ways to do that, like sleep, exercise, nutrition, but also mindfulness, where you you're recognising thoughts and and working on that. You're not dwelling on thoughts, you, but mm. at the same time, you're not dismissing them either. You're not. It's a tough one. Um, I really hope that people, especially people with kids, realise how big a part that should be of of growing up, being able to... Talk about it with your family and talk about it at school, talk about it with your friends. Yeah, yeah. And for me, like, Laurie's only 20 months old, but, you know, he gets his little temper tantrums and things like that. I can't communicate to him that much. He's only just starting to say words and that now, but I'll sit there with him on my chest and start breathing deep and and hoping that that rubs off on him a little bit and just try and be a calming influence that, you know, mm. not everything's got to be super hyped up. Dill, one last question I want to ask you about that is a lot of us people in the world know nutrition's important, know fitness is important. We, ha- we have the yeah. intellectual understanding that sleep, nutrition, but it's still so hard, right? <laughs> like yeah. if it was easy, everyone would do it. So yeah, yeah. The very first step, if someone wants to just do one thing today, one thing, what could they do? That- well, I think have a think about what what part of the the circle they haven't quite got right, I suppose. And mm-hmm. Or they want to know more about. Yeah, yeah. Like, say, for me, in my everyday life right now, I know I don't exercise enough. So mm-hmm. I need to make that plan. I know a good PT, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I suppose, but... For me, exercise is becoming a harder one because my body's not what it used to be. I, yep. I'm breaking down a bit, but 25 years of rugby will do that to you. Mm. So, I've, you know, I'm working on things that I, I know I can do. They're not super physical. You know, I want to go play target shooting a bit more, maybe play a bit of golf or something like that. You know, just it's more about getting away from work and like even away from your family. A little bit, like yeah. just having some time to yourself so you can. And um, outdoors, yeah. you know, we started the conversation with you saying when I asked you what your favourite room in the house was, you said the shed. For you, that there's an element of being outdoors amongst nature. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so definitely. that's, you know, when you talk about golf or clay shooting, it's, it's bringing it back to that and what helps you feel grounded. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and if if I was to ask you, Dill, what's something in your world that makes you laugh? And I mean, really, truly, belly laugh. Yeah. Is there someone or something or somewhere? I've got a good mate in the territory, 
Oh, he's actually in Kununurra now. But uh, every time we talk on the phone, we we have a good belly laugh. And I don't know, I don't know what about us two interacting that it always takes us to some story or or some conversation where we're both having a massive chuckle. I love the belly laugh because it's it's not impossible, but it's almost impossible to feel sad in that moment when you've got that real belly laugh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One I've noticed with with Laurie. He'll be cranky, upset. If you laugh at him, he starts laughing as as well. It snaps him out. Breaks the cycle. Yeah. 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 Oh, thank you so much, Dill. It is such an honour to be sitting here with you today. And I am just so grateful that we are sitting here today, you know, being on that journey with you along the way and at times being absolutely frightened for your safety and frustrated at the systems for not being able to have the resources. I know we can't change that overnight, but you did a phenomenal job with mental mates in starting to make a shift in that space. So I just want to um, say thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and having the courage to share it. No, thank, thank you, Al. And your help over the years has been amazing as well. You've definitely been there through the toughest times, so much appreciated. Hopefully this is the first of many conversations that you all have around the difficult and heartbreaking topic of suicide. Yes, they are conversations that are much easier not to have. Yes, you're going to fumble your way through them, just like we did on today's episode, but have them. Have them today. Have them tomorrow. Check in with people if you notice something is different. Ask, are you okay? It is okay to tell people that you don't know what will help. You don't have to have all the answers. Just let them know that you'll help them work it out. Encouraging people to seek help that works for them. If someone or something isn't working, encourage them to try somewhere else. And I absolutely love how Dill talks about working with all aspects of well-being. They are not separated. Sleep impacts mental health. Nutrition impacts fitness. Meditation and mindfulness work. So I want you to have a think just now. I want you to take a moment and work out one area of your life that you can work on this week. If anyone needs any strategies in any of these areas, just pop in our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, hashtag ask, and put the topic underneath. So you could say hashtag ask, sleep strategies, and I'll pop some up for you or hashtag ask meditation. And I can send you to some great sites that has free meditation. Some of my key take-home messages from this episode were that it is a holistic approach. A doctor and medication can help, but it's just one piece of the pie. I love when Dill speaks about being off medication since starting meditation. Sometimes the person going through this difficult and dark time don't actually have it in them to speak up and let you know. So we need to ask them the questions, even if we're scared, even if we're not sure how to. And talking about these difficult conversations can help so many of our fellow Australians. So remember, if you want to have a talk to someone or anything in this episode feels like it's triggered you, please call Lifeline on 131114 or talk to someone in your circle. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.